little break from Judges this week. It's just a one-week break. Don't get too um, excited. We're going to hop right back into it next week. We are looking at um, Elijah um, this week. It's a little bit ahead, but just spoiler alert, Israel's still having a rough time. And so um, it makes me think about when I was in a community group in college my freshman year, we started every group off the same way each week. We would start off with our highs and our lows. We would, we would go around in the group and um, everybody would say the high point of the week and everybody would say their low point of the week. Sometimes um, the highs and lows were pretty middle of the road, right? Sometimes our highs were super high that we couldn't even think of a low. Sometimes the lows felt so low we never thought we'd have a high again because we're dr- dramatic uh, freshman. And so um, we, it, it, it really was a toss-up. But one thing that we always had was we always had highs and lows. Everybody in this room, when I said highs and lows, could probably think of a high that they have had recently. They can probably even think of a low that they had had recently. Maybe you're at your highest of highs right now. Maybe Maybe being with the body of believers is the high point of your week, and I hope it is. Maybe you're in the pew right now, and you are currently feeling like you're in the pits. You're in the lowest of lows here. And we're looking at Elijah, who has just come off of a high, like the highest of highs, and makes a pendulum swing to the lowest of lows in less than 24 hours. And so if you, you'll read with me, we're going to be in uh, 1 Kings chapter, n- chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 1 through 18. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Um, we'll have that on the screen. And then in the pews, you have the NIV. So if you would like to follow along with me, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. So if you'll read with me. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. 
And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So the first thing I want to highlight here is Elijah's journey from the highest of highs to his lowest low. Just to recap, in chapter 18, God has brought the fire onto the altar, putting to shame the prophets of Baal and Asherah, demonstrating the power of the Lord over these false gods, demonstrating to everybody present the power of God in relation to these false gods. So then after that, Elijah takes his sword and he strikes down 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah. Just for anybody counting at home, that's about 850 prophets. I'm just going to break this down for a little moment because it's, it's just astounding to me. There's 850 prophets. I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say that they didn't line up in a line and say, kill me first. And so they were probably running, maybe hiding under a rock, but um, Elijah probably had to work for it a little bit. So let's say each prophet takes between one and three whacks, all right? Y'all, let's say an average of two whacks. That's over 1,600 swings of the sword for Elijah. Let's say he switches hands. That's 800 each. Y'all, this guy was exhausted. He had just won this spiritual victory over the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, but that doesn't make him immune to physical exhaustion. So he was exhausted. And so then we see Jezebel come in and she threatens the life of Elijah. So not only is he exhausted, but he is disillusioned. He is not looking at things the right way. One scholar says that disillusion only comes as the child of illusion. So what was Elijah's um, illusion here? Elijah was expecting a total victory. He had just beaten the prophets of Baal and Asherah. God had brought the great fire and won this great victory. And then 
A day later, Jezebel is threatening his life. So this power that he thinks he has beaten all of a sudden is threatening him once again. So this total victory was not, in fact, a total victory. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Now the end will come, but the last enemy that is defeated is, is death. Now, if you keep reading about um, Elijah in Kings, it's kind of, kind of funny because he's one of only a couple of um, examples of people who do, who do not die in the Bible. So that's a little bit of a different story. But Elijah believed that after he had won this victory at Mount Carmel, Israel would go back to the state that it needed to be. He thought that he was enough to do what needed to be done to bring Israel back to where it needed to be. He believed that lie. Then he makes a pendulum swing and he says, Lord, nothing I do matters. He's terrified and he runs. So Elijah was exhausted. He was disillusioned and his view was distorted. How was his view distorted? What messed up his perspective and what usually messes up our perspective is that we do think that if we can overcome the one hurdle that we are trying to overcome right now, if we can overcome this one hill, this one mountain, if we can make it out of this one valley, no more valleys, no more hurdles. Just let me get over this hurdle and then it's all flat from here. It's all good. But let's go back to Paul. The last enemy that shall be defeated is death. Not the most Hopeful message for Elijah in this moment. He feels alone, he feels exhausted, and he feels like he has lost. Elijah made Jezebel big. He made the threat of his life big, making God small. When our vision is distorted, when things are blurry in our life, in, the, in my case at least, I go to the optometrist. They do the one or two test, you know, one, two, better one, better two, right? So, so until by the end of the test, you're like, actually, I, I'm not sure anymore. I don't know. And so it's all blurry. And so they're trying to figure out where your eyes are. Do you need an update on your prescription? What do you need here? I love getting my prescription updated. That's a little weird, but I love it. I love it when I take off my old glasses, I put on my new glasses, and I go from the analog antenna view that I've had for about a year to that HD 4K TV view. It's like, man, this is great. Sometimes we need somebody else in our life to tell us that our vision is distorted. My wife is really great in a whole lot of ways, but she's really great in this way especially. She is very good about telling me when my glasses are so smudged that she can't see my eyes. I adjust, I touch my glasses all the time. I just did. And I get to the point where, you know, it doesn't look any different to me. It kind of happens gradually. I don't realize, you know, I'm probably not seeing most of the things. I could probably see a street sign about a hundred yards um, quicker than, uh, than I could if they were clean. So I'm not going to say that Emily's uh, tactics here are totally 
selfless. It's probably a lot of a self-preservation as well if I'm driving. And so she is very good about telling me, hey, these glasses need to be wiped off. And she's always good about, uh, you know, spraying it down with the stuff and then uh, clean it off. Because I'm not aware of how smudged my glasses have become on my own. I put them on, I get that HD vision back. Sometimes we need somebody else to speak into our lives and tell us, hey, our vision is distorted. So at this point, Elijah's exhausted. He is disillusioned. His view of life is distorted. So take all those things. Jezebel threatens his life and he runs. He not only runs, when he gets to Beersheba, he leaves his servant behind intentionally isolating himself. So not only is he exhausted, disillusioned, distorted, but now he is physically alone. He has isolated himself. So seeing no way out, Elijah continues on. He goes to the wilderness and he collapses under a tree and he says, God, take my life. It is no longer worth it. I am alone. Take my life. So Elijah is hopeless. He is at the bottom of this pit. So to summarize here, spiritual mountaintop, victory over the false prophets. It wasn't the total victory he expected, so he flees. He runs, he leaves his servant and intentionally isolates himself. He goes to the wilderness and then he asks God to take his life because he no longer wants to live. That's in the first five verses. So let's see what God does next. God does not rebuke Elijah for asking him to take his life. What does he do? He gives him rest. He lets him sleep. There's a lot of science behind the physical interaction of your body with the spiritual, emotional, mental aspects of your body. Your physical health is very strongly linked to your mental and emotional and spiritual health. And so he gets some rest. He gets some food. He gets some rest again. He gets some more food. And then he journeys to Horeb, typically about a two-week journey. Elijah takes his time, takes about 40 days. He has a lot of time to himself. Spoiler alert, his attitude is not much better. So he gets to Horeb, and God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? So once he arrives in Horeb, he is forced not only to confront where he should be, but he is also forced to confront why he is not where he should be. He feels alone. He feels like he is the only one doing what God wants him to do. And he feels like the enemies of the Lord are all trying to take his life. He hasn't progressed all that far out of the pit the pits. So the Lord tells him, all right, go and wait for my presence. So the Lord sends a mighty earthquake, sends a mighty wind, sends a mighty fire. All things that when you're in the pits, you're probably saying, God, I need you to show up in a big way. I can't see you. I'm so far down in the pits right now. You better come in big here because my vision's blurry. And so I'm going to need something big to come here. But God wasn't in the earthquake, wasn't in the wind, wasn't in the fire. Instead, he comes in a still, small 
whisper, which is typically the moment, the quiet, when a lot of us who are in the pits would say, God, where are you? Why can't I see you? Why can't I hear you? Elijah, in this passage, we hear a lot about Elijah's life. We see in verse 2, we see Jezebel threaten Elijah's life. We see Elijah run to protect his life. A verse later, we hear Elijah say, Lord, take my life, the life he was just trying to flee to protect. And then in verses 10 and 14, we see Elijah complain that the enemies of the Lord are trying to take his life. My paraphrase of the whisper of the Lord here is, okay, first of all, not your life anyway. It's mine. And second of all, I'm not through with you yet. So this still small voice comes in and gives Elijah hope and gives Elijah a new purpose, gives him a new vision for what comes next. In the cave, Elijah sees he does not need to run from God. At this point in the story, Elijah is very frustrated. He's the only one doing what is right. Everybody's trying to kill him. Nobody else is doing the right thing. God, you have left me alone and we're about to lose totally. And the Lord takes this opportunity to make it clear what he has in store for Elijah. He says he needs to go and anoint Haziel to be king of uh, to be king over um, Syria. Then he needs to go and anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. Then he needs to go and anoint Elisha to be his successor. I have someone for you to mentor. I have quality tasks for you to do. And a lot of times when we find ourselves in the pits or we find somebody else in the pits, we're like, just give them something to do. That'll get them out of the pits. But the Lord doesn't leave Elijah in the pits. We're going to hit that in one second. Elijah has kind of taken God off of his throne in his mind, and he's kind of put him in a little bit of an office chair that swivels. He's kind of put him in a chair that swivels, and at this point, God is swiveled with his back to Elijah. Elijah thinks, man, God is God has swiveled around. He is not looking at me. He doesn't care about me. He has left me alone. When our view is d- d- distorted, when we are disillusioned, when we find ourselves in the pits, we don't think rationally. God is on his throne facing the same way every time. We're the ones who swivel. Elijah has turned his back and run, and he has gotten out of place. He is not where he needs to be. But God has given him a new purpose. He has said, you need to turn around, go back where you came from, and anoint these people. He goes on to say, so you know how you're talking about these enemies of the Lord that are trying to kill you? These men that you're about to anoint They're going to take care of those enemies. So everything that Elijah is worrying about, God has a plan for that. He's too busy swiveling around to notice what God's plan is for him. How often do we spend so much time away from God, wondering what is God's plan for us when all we have to do is turn, face him, and he's got that purpose. 
He's got it. We're the ones who turn around and run away. But God doesn't just leave Elijah with marching orders to go and anoint these kings and to anoint Elisha. He says, you're not alone. There are 7,000 people who have not bowed to Baal or Asherah. You are not alone. So Elijah didn't just need marching orders. He didn't just need food and rest. He needed to be reminded he's not alone. When we're in the pits, we don't feel like there are others alongside us. We don't feel like there is anybody on our team. But God looks at him and says, hey, there's a cloud of witnesses around you here. Just look. And they are there. So God doesn't just give him a vision of tasks. He also reminds him, look, I haven't left you, um, I haven't left you alone here. I love it in 2 Kings. So later on, so after he mentors Elisha, um, Elisha is with a servant, and um, Elisha wakes up to his servant coming in and saying, Elisha, there is a huge enemy army at the gates here. We are surrounded. There's a lot of them. It's over. We're done. What are we going to do? How are we going to escape? And Elisha just prays, Lord, open up this man's eyes to see. And the Lord opens up this man's eyes, and what does he see? The heavenly armies surrounding that army, multitudes times bigger than any force arrayed against them. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that we are not alone. We need to have the scales lifted from our eyes, and we need to see with the eyes that God has of what he has for us. It's hard to see when you're in the pits. And so what do we do? When life is tough, because life is tough. Everyone in this room can testify to how life is tough. So what do we do when life gets tough? First of all, we need to be the people in each other's lives that encourage people in the pits, that they are not alone, that God has a purpose for them. And then two, we need to surround ourselves with people who will remind us of that. Because if we're doing all the reminding and we have not surrounded ourselves with people who will remind us back, that's not how community works. And if we're all reminding each other, nobody gets left out, right? And so we were made to live in community and we want to be the kind of people that encourage others. And then we want to be the kind of people that surround ourselves with people who will encourage us in return. The story of Elijah shows us a lot of things. It shows us that even the strongest among us can find ourselves in the pits, and that's okay, because there will be pits. Highs, lows, they happen every week. But just like God lifted Elijah out of his pits, he can lift us out as well. And he's created us for community to help each other in that. We can't leave each other, we can't leave each other alone in those pit. It doesn't matter what the pit is. 
It's not deeper than God's love for us. It doesn't matter what the pit is. It doesn't matter how dark it is because it's not darker than the light of God's purpose for us. And it doesn't matter what it is because we are never as alone as we think we are. Now, I don't know where this hits all of us here. I know that um, when you're graduating and you're transitioning to a new stage of life, there's a lot of opportunities to find yourself in the pits. Maybe you've found yourself in the pits in just your regular, ordinary, everyday life. But what I can tell you is, is that God is stronger than anything that you will find yourself in. He has created us for community, and he loves each and every one of us a whole lot. When God called us to make disciples of all nations, he wasn't just calling a few of us in the helping profession. He wasn't just calling a few Christians. He was calling all Christians to make investments in people around them. And the trick with that is, is that when you are in a helping profession, if you are in the business of helping people, which covers all followers of Jesus, if you are in the business of helping others, you're going to hit some times of just burnout. Whether it's burnout, situational depression, the pits, whatever you want to call it. It's going to happen. And so... What we do with it is the most important part. God doesn't promise us a life without hurdles, but he does promise us that the ultimate victory has already been won. And so as followers of Christ, we can rest in that. If there's anybody in this room who might not be a follower of Christ, might not have given their lives over to have a relationship with Jesus, just know that the spirit that resurrected Jesus, the power that pulled Elijah out of the pits, resides in us as followers of Jesus. We're going to have a time of invitation. And if you have any questions about that, we would love to answer. We'll have a few, we'll have a few ministers down here in the front who would love to pray with you, to talk with you. If you would like to be a part of a community of believers that encourages each other, that knows each other, that loves each other, whether we're in the pits or whether we are on our spiritual mountaintop, this could be the place for you, and we would love to talk to you about that. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you are all-powerful that you have a plan for us, that you love us. God, I thank you that your love is wider than the east is from the west. Thank you that your power cannot be measured. Thank you that you have created us to live in a community of um, believers that um, encourages each other and can help lift each other out of whatever pits life may throw at us. Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of people that when we see someone in the pits, God, that we would not hesitate. We would reach in 
and encourage. God, I pray for anybody in this room who is in the pits right now. God, I pray that they would just know your love, that they would know your plan for them, that they would be able to rest in that promise. God, I pray for anybody in this room who does not know you, for any hearts that you are working on in this room. I pray that they would open up their hearts to you, God. We love you and we praise you. And I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.